0: pray with me. Lord heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, you see all. If you were to mark our iniquities, Lord, who would stand? No one. We confess that we have not loved you, not exalted you, not been satisfied in you as you rightly deserve. Forgive us our sins, Lord, because as Jesus died in our place. Forgive his father because he was the perfect sacrifice and he's become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We groan for that day, Lord, when you will finally redeem all of us, our fleshly bodies included, and when you'll set us free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of Christ. On that day, we will have no more sin, on that day, we'll finally see you face to face. But until that day, Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Conform us to the character of your perfect Son, in whose glorious name we pray. Amen. The main theme of the book of Leviticus is be holy, for I, your God, am holy. And you might ask, well, how holy? Jesus says in Matthew 5:48, "You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Perfect. Holy. Like God. If you're a Christian, you must desire holiness. Scripture commands you to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects, to shine as a blazing star in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to glorify your God and Savior in life and in death. Why? Because you've been made a slave to righteousness. You belong now both body and soul to him. And because he died, you died. Because he resurrected, you have been resurrected. Because he loved you and gave his life for you. How could you do anything else but love him and give your life for him? Think upon this gospel right, that we've been meditating on for six chapters. God loved you when you were a rebel. When you were a scoundrel in his sight. But Christ, the only savior, the second Adam, he purchased your salvation on that cross despite you being a sinner. It was a double exchange. He took the sins of his people and bore them on his shoulders. He died in our place for our sins and he gave to us his perfect righteousness. Earned by his perfect obedience as a gift of grace. In Christ we've been saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. And we stand now before this holy God clothed in His in Christ's perfection. We Christians are righteous, perfect, not in and of ourselves, but because of someone else, namely Jesus. No longer condemned, but redeemed, no longer under the wrath of God, but loved. This gospel is why we praise, why we worship, why we adore, why we live for. God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this gospel is also our battle cry, our hope, our great confidence in life and in death. And this God deserves our obedience, deserves our love, deserves our holiness, and has every right to command us to live holy as he is holy, to live perfect as he is perfect. So, my brothers and sisters, who is holy as God is holy? Anyone? Anyone? Who's perfect as God is perfect here? Who obeys the greatest commandments to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as their self? Anyone? Good, you passed. But that's the paradox, isn't it? At the core, every Christian wants to love God and be holy. And without exception, we all fail. Why? Why? Why do I still sin? Why do I, as a regenerate, born again, God loving, blood bought, gospel believing Christian, still sin against the Lord that I love? What do I do, not with just the sins of my past, but my sins today, the sins I committed today? How do I deal with that? These are the questions that our passage in Romans answers. It gives the gospel to Christians, and it does so in two parts. Part one the war within i.e., why do I still sin? Part two, wretched and yet redeemed. What will I do about my sin? Part one, the war within, verses 14 and 23. And if you're a Christian, you know what this war is like. You want to be pure in heart like Jesus, but you lust, you objectify, you fantasize. You steal what is not yours and you reject God's good design for sexual for sexual pleasure and you feel enslaved. Or you wanna be gentle and kind like Jesus, but you just can't stand that coworker or that friend or that customer or that family member. Bitterness turns your heart into stone and you are shocked when you find yourself thinking, I wish that person were dead. Or you wanna be content because you know God is your heavenly father. He's given you every good thing, but you're greedy. You covet, you envy, you take, And the secret thought of your heart is always, I want more. Examples abound, but you're probably already thinking about your besetting sin. Don't you hate that about yourself? The hypocrisy, the sham, the shame. We call ourselves Christians, which means little Christs, patterned after Jesus, and yet we sin so blatantly against the truth. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we fundamentally do what we don't want to do? It's because sin dwells in me. Paul describes this paradox. He says he wants to do good, but he doesn't do that good. He, want, he does not want to do evil, but he does do that evil. And discovering this makes Paul almost insane. You can almost like see him in your head pacing like a madman. Look at verse 15. For I'm, practicing what, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Jump down to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Why? Paul says twice in verse 17 and 20, It is no longer I doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Sin dwells in me. It's a virus. It's a contagion. It's an infestation. Sin lives in me. How can that be? I thought a believer was different. I thought a believer was changed. I thought a believer was born again. Why does sin still live? When an unbeliever sins, he is sinning according to his nature. He's bent towards sins, and he, and he can do nothing but Sin. I'm not saying he's as bad as he could be, but nothing he does is for the glory of God, and therefore it is sin. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. He indulges the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Ephesians 2, 3. He's a slave to unrighteousness and to sin, Ephesians 6:20. So when the unbeliever sins, he sins according to his nature, according to his enslaved, fleshly, spiritual, dead nature. But when a believer sins, he sins against his nature his new, born-from-above nature. He sins against the Holy Spirit who lives within him. He sins against the knowledge of the Word of God. He sins against the God who crushed his Son for that sin. He sins against Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Believers know they sin. And hence, the maddening paradox, this holy frustration. Why? I don't want to be impatient, but I am impatient. The very first attribute of love is patience. If you can't do the first thing, good, good luck doing the rest of the things, right? But why am I so impatient? Why can't I wait? Sin dwells within me. I do the very evil that I hate. How can sin live within? It's because two principles are within. Look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. A Christian is composed of two competing principles. She is spiritual and yet fleshly, redeemed and yet sinful, whole and yet broken, regenerate and yet corrupted a new creation, and yet a prisoner to her sin. On the one hand, she's regenerate. She's born again. She's made alive to Jesus Christ. She's spiritual. She has the mind of Christ, the desire to do good, the love for God and his people, and a new nature that craves the things of above, that wants to live according to the spirit within her. And at the same time, she's a sinner, fleshly, corrupted, the old nature enslaved to the desires of the flesh, this is why she's still, still susceptible to the lust of the flesh, why she's still tempted to sin, why she still is a prisoner in some ways to sin. Now that's a lot of theological, metaphorical language, but the main point is this. The reason why we sin is because there's a war within ourselves. The old sinful part against the new regenerate Christian part. Verse 23, which I just read, says these two parts are at war with one another. Galatians 5:17 elaborates, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these in are, in, are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So dear Christian, welcome to the war. Most of us don't like conflict and we'll do almost anything to avoid it, but this is a war you cannot run from. This is a war you were thrust into the moment you believed. There's no question that your sin is warring against you. The question is, are you fighting back? I want to speak to those for a moment who have forgotten about this war, maybe downplayed it. You rationalize, excuse your sin. You sip and sip and sip at the fountain of your sin, just enough to get buzzed suppressing your conscience that reminds you all sin leads to death, you say to yourself, "Eh, that's not a big deal. Jesus died for that sin. Don't be a fool. Jesus died for that sin, and therefore it is a big deal. The glorious, beautiful, majestic, wonderful, perfect Son of God, very God of very God, whom we celebrate every single Christmas and every single Sunday, and really every single Easter, every single Sunday, every single day, He died for that sin. The Father crushed him on that cross because that's what you deserve. Jesus did not die so that we could indulge in our filth. Romans 6.1, it just turned a chapter ahead, or chapter behind, says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Listen to what John Owen says. He says, be killing sin Or sin will be killing you. I think Chris already quoted that in a sermon. It's such a good quote, we'll say it again. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Do you know what it is to kill your sin? Not just struggle with it, but kill it. To kill a sin means to put it to death, to give it no room, to stop its every manifestation, to beat it back to hell from whence it came. It means to have a holy dissatisfaction with your progress to push harder and harder to live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called, to remind your sin that has been nailed to the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. To kill sin means to find the word of God ever sweeter, God's promises ever sure, God's grace ever more sufficient, ever more satisfying, and therefore sin ever more repulsive, ever more twisted, ever more destructive. If you're not killing your sin, your sin is killing you. Sin is not normal. It is disgusting. Get rid of it. My sophomore year of college, four guys in my church, not including me, that's important, moved into an apartment together. You'll see why. I have a lot of good memories of that place. Uh, We used to do small groups there, a lot of late night gaming, and Lord of the Rings marathons, which are very important. But one thing I'll never forget about that place is the maggots. It started slowly, just a few little white pills on the ceiling. And um, the guys are very patient, you know, they killed them and made sure that they, you know, put them away. Um, Except one guy, he like caught them and put them in a container and watched them turn into moths, which is gross. But we had no idea where they're coming from, right? Months go by and it gets worse. Now it's not just maggots, it's the moths that they come, flying around the house and getting everything. Um, It was so bad that people in our fellowship stopped coming over to our house. I mean, like, what if it dropped in your food? What if it got in your hair? What if it went in your mouth, right? That's disgusting. So one day, finally, we are fed up. Where were these things coming from? We traced them from the family room, into the bedroom, on the ceiling, into the bedroom, into the kitchen, and finally to the kitchen cabinets. We opened the cabinets, and what did we find? We found them in the cereal. One box was open, so automatically in the trash can, you didn't look at that thing, right? We're like, okay, these other boxes have you know, cereal, but they're not open yet. Maybe we'll see, so we open up the box. Somehow the maggots were inside the plastic bags, even though the plastic bags were sealed. Okay, those are in the trash for sure. And then, okay, now these are, there's a box of like breakfast bars, it's not open, so open up the box of breakfast bars. I don't know how this happened, but the maggots were in the glue used to seal the boxes. Which, I don't know if that happens, but they were. Okay, so in the trash, and let's, okay, this is like this woven basket thing, maybe we can keep this, it might be, no, in the trash. No exceptions. Isn't this almost the perfect illustration of sin? Right? Let's say someone came up, or let's say you know, you, someone came up to you and said, "Oh my gosh, there are maggots eating off of your left hand." You wouldn't say, "Oh, I mean, like it's not as bad as it was yesterday. Like it's fine." Or you wouldn't say, "It's only my left hand. I'm right-handed, so it's good." You wouldn't go, "Oh my gosh, like let me hide that from you. <laughs> it's good now, right?" No, that's disgusting. But you who ignore the war against sin. Isn't that exactly what you do when you coddle, excuse, justify, ignore, downplay, cover up your sin? It's exactly what we do. Everyone does it. It's not as bad as it could be, don't worry. I'm getting better. At least I'm reading my Bible, or my favorite. Stop judging me. Jesus says to you, Jesus says to you in Mark 9, If your hand causes you to stumble, that means if it causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, you might call this demand too extreme, but that's Jesus talking. And that attitude of refusing to cut off your sin, even if it hurts, is exactly what leads you to hell. When you stand before Jesus Christ at his glorious throne, you will not be able to make excuses for the sin you refuse to kill. Examine yourself. How do you say you love Jesus and at the same time willingly love sin? No one can serve two masters. If you love Christ, if you live for him, then put your sin to death. Now let's get really practical. I remember, this, remember the war. What will you do to cut off your sin? Level one might be accountability software for all, yes, all of your devices, all of them. Level two might be getting all the screens out of your room after dinner. Level three might be having an accountability partner that you meet with every week and you are 100% honest with. Number four, level four might be getting a roommate, like, like a real roommate in your room living with you. Level five might be getting rid of your internet plan entirely on your phone and at home. Actually, I actually had my own Sunday school teacher do that. And he forced himself to go to Starbucks every day to use the internet because he wanted to be in public while online. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible does not prescribe those levels. It's just a creative way from one sinner to another. How will you cut off your sin? Whatever you need to do, cut it off. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now, whatever your sin, we all need to leave the darkness and walk in the light. In transparency with one another as brothers and sisters. Believers are to love one another, arm in arm, together fighting the sin that clings so closely. So who in your life will put the finger on your sin? Who in the life will drag you, lovingly, but drag you still into the light of Christ? In your practice, small groups, do you confess sin? If we aren't confessing specific sins and seeking help and counsel and prayer from one another, like, why are we here, really? If we're not dealing with our sin, what's the point? Yes, we should share about our suffering. Yes, we should talk about how things are hard, and we should bury one another's burdens. But push further, for example, work's insane. And honestly, I'm bitter at my boss for being so unfair to me. I complain in my heart all day long, and I even complain with my mouth too. What should I do? How can you help me? Or singleness is hard. I'm lonely, I'm discontent, and honestly, I really don't trust that God is loving me in this. I feel like he's forgotten me. What's your counsel for me? How can I stop hating God? Or, my significant other and I are fighting a lot, and I'm ashamed, and I'm angry, and I don't know what to do. Christ seems very far from our relationship. Help me. Pray for me. Beloved, you need the body of Christ, and we need you. We need you to allow us to love you, to walk with you, to give you words and actions of grace and truth. You must fight the war against sin. But you're not alone. The Spirit lives within you. Christ is interceding for you. And the Father is empowering you. And your fellow soldiers, your fellow believers, are right beside you, fighting too. You must fight. You must be killing the sin, or your sin will be killing you. Now I want to turn a little bit, and I want to speak to those who have not forgotten this war, You're fighting, but you feel like you're just losing. You keep trying, but you keep failing. You listen to the sermon of very hard things, and you're like, great. Another thing I can't do, another thing I'm failing at, thanks, Keith. You look at your life, and you find the same ugly sins from three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, even from before you believed. And you ask yourself, will I ever change? What's the point? That's you, dear beloved, don't despair. You are wretched, but you are redeemed. That's our second point, wretched yet redeemed. After illustrating this war within the believer, Paul cries out with a holy frustration. He says, wretched man that I am, who has set me free from the body of this death? To be wretched means to be miserable, discontented, distressed, heartbroken, and why wouldn't we be? Sin is the worst. Right? What a believer has ever blown up at their, their friend, just angry, and then after they've calmed down and returned to sanity, has, re, has said, oh yeah, like, that was excellent. I should definitely do that again. Right? Or what, what believer has ever tormented himself in anxiety and said, oh yeah, I love panic attacks. 10 out of 10, recommend. Right? No, sin's the worst. Sin brings regret, sorrow, shame, agony. We hate it. And still, we sin. Sin deceives us, enslaves us, isolates us, torments us, destroys us. It eats our soul like maggots eat flesh. It infects our body like cancer. Never does sin satisfy. Never does it grant the peace we crave. Never does it bring everlasting joy. And yet, we still sin. What's your besetting sin? And by besetting, I mean persistent stubborn sin, discontentment, greed, selfishness, malice, jealousy, bitterness, sexual immorality, lust, perversion, anger, stubbornness, pride, apathy, impatience, rudeness, laziness, pleasure-seeking, fear. What's your sin? The guilt can be overwhelming. Overwhelming. You believe God loves you, because the Bible says, you trust that Jesus died for your salvation, but you don't know what to do about your stubborn sin. Could the Father really love a sinner like me? Could the Son have really died for a weakling like me? Could the Spirit really live within such a bad Christian like me? My dear brother, my dear sister, the answer is yes. In fact, your struggle, your fight, your discontentment with your sin is proof of God's love and life in you. When unbelievers sin, they're not bothered by it. Unbelievers are dead to sin Ephesians 1, excuse me. Unbelievers are dead in their sin Ephesians 2:1, insensitive to the things of God 1 Corinthians 2:14 and blinded by Satan to the glory of Jesus Christ 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. But believers, by the grace of God, are alive, and they fight, and that is proof of their life. Romans 8.13 says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, that's sin, you will live. Notice, it does not say, if you've already finished putting to death your sin, then you will live. It says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death your sin, you will live. It doesn't say you're done. It doesn't say the fight is over. It says the fight is continuing. The point is that continual hacking, persevering fighting, leads to life. This perseverance, even though it's hard, is actually, I think, the strongest evidence of someone's faith. Christopher Ashe says, The wonder is not that we fail, but that we mind about failing and get up to walk again. Again, the wonder is not that we fail, but that we mind about failing and then we get up to walk again. So dear Christian, take heart. Christian life is hard. We follow a man who is crucified on a bloody cross, and he commands us to take up our cross and follow him. He never said life will be cushy, but he promises it will be worth it. I must also add, though, it's not all pain. The war against sin is actually the path of everlasting joy in the fire of affliction, you must remember that this fight is actually for your joy. And I have four encouragements that will lead to that joy. First, when you're despairing, realize you're not alone. Realize you're not alone. Paul cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am. When Paul looks at himself, he doesn't see his many accomplishments. He doesn't see his holiness. He doesn't see his apostleship. After writing Romans 1 to 6, this glorious gospel, which we have really reveled in, he sees his sin. I mean, this is the apostle, of all apostles. He has more godliness in his, like, pinky toe than I'll have in my entire body in my whole life. If you feel miserable about your sin, you're in good company. You're in Paul's company. So you should rejoice. Godliness is what makes you grieve over sin. You grieve over it because God is grieved. Yet also, don't stay in that grief. Cry out like Paul for a savior. Verse 24 continues. Who will set me free from the body of this death? That is, who will free me from being a prisoner to my sin? Who will save me from my stubborn, frustrating, current sin? Leads to the second encouragement. Rejoice in your savior from past and present sin. Verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who's your Savior? It's like a dust Sunday school children's ministry question, right? Who's your Savior? It's God. It's Jesus. He's the one that saved us. And yet remember, he's not only our Savior from past sins. He's our Savior from current sins and future sins. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for all of your sins? Can he save you even from the sin you committed last night? Can you save you even from the sin you committed right before you got here? Can you save you from your sin all the way home to glory? One of the last things Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished. That is, salvation is accomplished. The price has been paid. The work is complete. There is nothing else to do because I have done it all. That means all your sin, past, present, future, he atoned for. Do you really believe that? That is the gospel. Do you really believe that? That he died for you? Then you must believe that he is your complete savior. He's the one who will make you whole. He's the one who deals with all of your sin. And he will not fail. If you could, turn with me forward to 1 Thessalonians 5. I want to read a very encouraging passage. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. That means make you holy entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. That's a promise in Scripture. He will make you holy, complete. Isn't that wonderful? Trust him. Believe that he'll deal with all your sin. Thirdly, third encouragement, run quickly to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. Run quickly to Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 24 to 25, it takes, it takes Paul just one verse to move from despair over his sin to hope in Christ. Just one verse, like a rocket from the depths of hell all the way to heaven, Paul ascends. You should do the same. You should do the same. I think so often instead of turning to Christ in our sin, we spiral. We beat ourselves up with this, I don't know, stewing in guilt and wallowing in our self-loathing. And again, I call that the spiral. It's like a mental tailspin where you're just, I don't know, making logical deductions, but it's entirely devoid of God. It might sound something like this. I sinned again. I prayed, I fasted, I got counseling, I memorized scripture, but I failed. And i really messed up this time. I know it was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyways. Maybe that's why I'm single. Maybe that's why I'm poor. Maybe that's why I'm lonely. It's because God is holding out on me until I can get my act together. He's rejecting me because I'm the worst. Like, I can't do it. Like, what's the point of Bible reading? What's the point of praying? I tried. It doesn't work. In fact, I don't even want to go to church anymore. It feels so shameful. All those Christians out there, they're they're godly. They have their lives put together. They have their wonderful families, cute children. But I'm a mess. And I know they'll hate me. I can't talk about this. I just want to run away. I'm hopeless. I'm worthless. And I can never change. At the bottom of the spiral Some people try to merit self-righteousness by trying harder. They serve more at church. They try to get a better reputation. They act godly. They use religious language. They post Christian stuff on social media. They hang out with the, the right crowd. Other people become functional atheists. They retain the mere husk of Christianity on the outside, but inside, their spirit dies. And so the flame is reduced to an ember, and they go through the motions about being a Christian, but it's really about appearance and not truly loving Lord Jesus Christ. But if I'm honest, I think most of us just sit in the mess of our sin and we beat ourselves up as if making ourselves feel worse would somehow atone for our own sin. It doesn't. It doesn't. Loathing yourself does not make you you clean. In fact, doing so, refusing to go to Christ, actually adds insult to injury. For you're saying that Christ's death Yeah, it's enough to pay for those sins, those people out there, but not my sins, not mine here. This sin is different. This sin is somehow more powerful than Christ's cross. By refusing to trust in Christ and to go to him to wash away your sin, we actually call him an incomplete savior, a deficient savior, a weak, failing savior. But as you spiral, do you know what Jesus says to you? He says, Come to me, all who are weak, and I will give you rest. He says, Come to me, all you who thirst, for I am the living water. He says, Come to me, all who hunger, for I am the bread of life. I am your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one who came, not to call a righteous but sinners to repentance. I am the one sacrificed for all time, for all sin. I am the one who has demonstrated the love of God. I am the embodiment of grace and truth from the Father. That's who Christ is. That's who he is. That's what he says. Why would you not come to him? Who can deal with your sin except him? First John nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise in Scripture. So you must run quickly to Jesus. Out of godly sorrow and true repentance, you must run quickly to Jesus. That doesn't make grace cheap. That doesn't make him a flippant Savior. It actually exalts him as sufficient, complete, worthy, successful Savior. So run quickly to him. Fourth and last encouragement, recognize your two principles. I have two natures there, but principles is probably a better word. So recognize your two principles. Middle verse 25. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of sin. But on the other, with my flesh, the law, excuse me. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. As I said before, a Christian has a both spiritual part and a fleshly part. Martin Luther, the great reformer, described a Christian as simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time justified and a sinner. Justified means declared righteous in God's sight because of Christ's work. It means you're forgiven, clean, your defilement is gone, Jesus' righteousness covers all of your sin, and God treats you as if you lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. It means you're not condemned by your sin, but you're free to live for God. Sinner means corrupted, guilty, fleshly, broken, unclean. It means we sin and we cannot deny it. It means we stray from God's ways. We flirt with the poison that will kill us. We go back to the filth of our wickedness and we indulge like swine. In other words, we're wretched and yet redeemed. This is who we are both, justified and sinner, wretched and redeemed. So in one sense, don't be surprised when you sin. Don't be surprised. Hate it. Don't make peace with it. War against it. But don't be surprised. said, own it, confess it, repent of it, and run to Christ who can cleanse you. Come to the one who can wash away all of your sin. And believe with all your heart, Romans 8, 1, which I feel like we should tattoo across the whole church. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean we just shout this from the heavens. Shout this to the heavens. There's no condemnation for a Christian. Like tell it to your coworkers. There's no penalty for those who believe. Tell it to your housemate. There's full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. No condemnation means no punishment, means no penalty. Why? Because you're not guilty? No, but you are guilty. But Christ has paid the price. Because we're in him, God doesn't punish our sin in judgment, but actually deals with our sin in gentle, holy love. Sometimes that hurts, as every Christian who's ever been disciplined knows. Yet God is the gardener, the gardener of our hearts, continually pulling out the weeds and the thorns of sin and sowing truth, watering with grace, and patiently making us grow. He's the one continually cleansing our hearts, even though we've already been clean. He's the one who's sanctifying you, By his work, he's making you holy, like his son. By his strength, we should strive with all the resources he gives to us, his word, his indwelling Holy Spirit, the prayers of faith, the community of believers around us. And we must believe that he will bring his good work to perfection. I've heard some preachers say, God cares more about your holiness than he does about your happiness. I get it. Um, God does care about our holiness way more than he cares about our temporal happiness. But if I might change the statement a little bit, God cares so much about your happiness in him that he makes you holy. God cares so much about your happiness in him that he makes you holy. In other words, the path of true happiness is the path of holiness. God's call to holiness is a call to true happiness, for God's call to, tr- to holiness is is actually a call to himself. God alone can be our true delight, the fountain of living water. When we drink deeply of him, we are filled with all the fullness that is ours in Christ Jesus. God calls us to holiness, not not primarily because he says, be holy or else you cannot be mine, but instead, I have made you mine, therefore be holy as I am holy. He loves us, and therefore we must be holy. Therefore, do the work of holiness. Put to death your sin. Be killing it all the time. Cut off every manifestation of your sin. You must strive, strain, fight, war, to be holy as God is holy. And finally, we must rest in the truth that on that final day, when we see Christ face to face, we will become what we already are, perfect perfect. We'll be free from the sin, both in body and in soul, and we'll shed our fleshly bodies and receive perfect resurrection ones instead, and enter the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, fully saved, fully holy, fully redeemed forever. That's our eternity, beloved. So let's run all the way home. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's who we are, Lord. We want to be blessed. We want to be happy, delighted in you. So grant us the kingdom. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation. Comfort us with your love. Help us kill the sin that clings so closely. Satisfy us with you, for we are wholly yours, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.